Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 12, Numbers chapter 11. Well, we just uh, concluded some chapters in Numbers that gave us a lot of detailed information that's been a little bit hard to slog, slog through, but it was needed. Just as learning multiplication tables is needed if we're going to be able to use math in our lives. But Numbers chapter 11, however, begins a section of Torah that for me is one of the most fascinating and informative. It tells the story of the 38 years of Israel wandering in the wilderness. And then for the next several chapters, we have as, as their prime theme, complaining, lack of faith, and outright rebellion. Even more, these chapters record the severe punishments that Yehovah responded with for these outrages against him. Now, this section of Torah also seemed to fascinate the Apostle Paul. He referred extensively to the book of Numbers in his writings particularly when he was writing and speaking to the Corinthians. Now, apparently he saw great parallels between the behavior and condition of those Corinthians, Jew and Gentile, who had come to believe in Christ, and then those Israelites who had trekked around the wilderness of the desert reaches of the Middle East, mostly south of Beersheba, 13 centuries before his day. Let's prepare for this section of Numbers by reading a little bit of what Paul had to say when he compared the Christians of Corinth to the Israelites of the Exodus. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1431. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read first 12 verses. For brothers, I don't want you to miss the significance of what happened to our fathers. All of them were guided by the pillar of cloud, and they all passed through the sea. And in connection with the cloud and with the sea, they all immersed themselves into Moshe. Also, they all ate the same food from the Spirit. They all drank the same drink from the Spirit. For they drank from a spirit-sent rock, which followed them, and that rock was the Messiah. Yet with the majority of them, God wasn't pleased, so their bodies were strewn across that desert. Now these things took place as prefigurative historical events, warning us not to set our hearts on evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters, as some, as some of them were, as the Tanakh puts it. The people sat down to eat and drink, and then they got up to indulge in revelry. And let's not engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did, with the consequence that 23,000 died in a single day. Let us not put the Messiah to the test, as some of them did. And they were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as prefigurative historical events, and they were written down as a warning to us who are living in the Acherit Hayamim, the world to come. Okay, 
Therefore, let anyone who thinks he is standing up be careful not to fall. The Torah issues many sober warnings. To those who say they would follow the God of Israel. Now Paul, a well-educated Jewish rabbi, completely understood this and realized that, of course, the advent of Christ doesn't change that situation. Disobedience towards God, even with redemption already accomplished, doesn't somehow immunize a believer against the possibility of divine punishment. Paul writes in Romans 15, what is perhaps the foundation of all of his teachings when he says, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. What was written in the former days is of course referring to the Hebrew Bible, the Tanah, what we call the Old Testament. Or in a more general sense to whatever was written before the time of Christ. Now, Paul's point of what we just read in 1 Corinthians 10 is this. If God dealt severely with his set-apart and chosen people, Israel, why would you think that he will not deal severely with his set-apart and chosen people who are in union with Messiah Yeshua? Are those who we commonly call the church no longer subject to God's righteous anger? The first few verses of 1 Corinthians 10 sets up the parallel situation. Those who traversed the wilderness were all immersed in Moses, which is shorthand for the covenant of Moses. In other words, they were all redeemed. They were all under God's covenant. They were all, they had all received the same spirit. They were all filled up with the same living water of the rock. And then Paul throws in this shocking reminder. Despite their redemption and personal relationship with God, many of them didn't survive when God strewed their rebellious bodies across the desert. Now his conclusion as to what this means to followers of uh, of Jesus Christ is in verse 11 of Corinthians 10, where it says, These things happened to them as prefigurative historical events, and they were written down as a warning to us who are living in the Akhrit Hayamim, world to come, times to come, the end times. In other words, even though it certainly actually happened to those Israelites in that way, it was equally meant for the New Testament generation as a warning to us. Now, frankly, the majority of Christian denominations allegorize this whole thing away by explaining that it's a warning about things that could not possibly happen to believers. A common theme among Christians today is that the God of the Old Testament is no more. Or more accurately, that he's fundamentally changed. So that there is no more severity, even though Paul says so in Romans 11. There is no more punishment of sins and rebellion for the believer, even though Jesus says so in Matthew 7. Listen to Matthew 7.21, very famous verses. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. 
On that day, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? Then I'll tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. No, says Paul in Yeshua, this was not a hollow warning or a toothless threat. My brethren, listen to me. This is another one of those Christian doctrines that pleases us to hear it because it removes all the repercussions for our decisions and our behavior. But it has no scriptural basis. Rather, what we're protected from is what the Bible alternately calls the wages of sin, which is spiritual death, and the curse of the law, which is also spiritual death, They're two phrases that mean the same thing. They are one and the same, only the former is stated in the New Testament, the latter in the Old. Do you still believe that God no longer has a severe side? Or that being in Christ somehow pardons you from being disciplined or punished, that is in the sense of receiving divine or natural consequences for your sinning? Oh, of course you're pardoned from the eternal death provided you don't renounce your allegiance to Jesus by your own free will. But to be immune from God's moral justice, that's nowhere known in the New Testament any more than in the Old. Let's listen to a little more Paul in Romans 11, a section of the New Testament that's frequently just jumped over, or it's allegorized away in modern times. Open your Bibles to Romans 11. It's just... Just a short jump backwards in your Bibles from 1 Corinthians, uh, page 1415, if you have the complete Jewish Bible. Romans 11. We're going to read 13 through 22. However, this is Paul speaking. However, I say to you Gentiles, since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles... I make known the importance of my work and the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It'll be life from the dead. Now, if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the roots holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, Gentiles, a wild olive, were grafted in among them and have become equal shares in the rich root of that olive tree, then don't boast as if you were better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember that you're not supporting the root. Root's supporting you. So you say, well, branches were broken off so they might be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be ignorant. On the contrary, be terrified. For if God didn't spare his natural branches, he certainly is not going to spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and his severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off, but on the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided You maintain yourself in that kindness. 
Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Moreover, the others, if they don't persist in that lack of trust, they'll be grafted in because God's able to graft them back in. For if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back in to their own olive tree? Paul teaches that, as has always been, God is severe on the one hand and kind on the other. He's kind to those who trust and obey. He's severe to those who fall away and rebel. God's essential nature hasn't changed. Now remember Paul is talking to Gentile believers specifically and Jewish folks generally. He's talking to you and me so we can't pretend this isn't for us. So what we're going to study in numbers over the next several weeks sets down the fundamental principles that guided Paul in his life as an evangelist. And they're reflected in his epistles that are the basis for what should be church doctrine, but often it's not. Now in Numbers we see that virtually the first thing that Israel does upon leaving Mount Sinai is to rebel. Even Moses becomes a grumbler. Over the next 15 chapters in Numbers, we will have detailed for us six identifiable rebellions. And every one of them was both real and also represents a type of rebelling against God. Some of the rebellions were by the people in general. Some of them were by the tribal leaders of Israel. Some by the Levites, the priestly tribe. Some even by Moses. In essence... Just as the seven churches of Revelation are both real and their types, so do the rebellions of the people in Israel of, of Israel in numbers present us with a pattern that we can expect to occur within the church. And when I say church, don't start thinking in terms of Baptists and Methodists and Catholics. That is, don't picture denominations and institutions and buildings. Think of individual believers. Think of groups of believers. In a larger view, we're about to spend several weeks looking at matters of human relationships, human leadership, the limitations of men, the expectations and demands of God, and the demand consequences for our failures. So now, let's read Numbers chapter 11. Turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 160. Well, chapter 10 ended with this wonderful, optimistic, prayerful, joyful poem, which expresses the mental and emotional state of the people of Israel as they began to strike camp for their journey to the promised land. What a great day that must have been. Numbers 10.35 says, Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Raise up, O Lord, let thine enemies be scattered. Let those who hate thee flee before thee. And when it came to rest, he said, Return thou, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. 
The very next sentence of the Torah is verse 1 of Numbers 11, and it says this. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Numbers chapter 11. But the people began complaining about the hardships to Adonai. When Adonai heard it, his anger flared up. So that fire from Adonai broke out against them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried to Moses, and Moses prayed to Adonai, and the fire abated. That place was called Taberah, burning, because Adonai's fire broke out against them. Next, the mixed crowd that was with them grew greedy for an easier life. While the people of Israel, for their part, also renewed their weeping and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt. It cost us nothing. And the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now we're withering away. We have nothing to look at but this manna. The manna, by the way, was like coriander seed and white like gum resin. The people would go around and they'd gather it and grind it up in mills or pound it into paste with mortar and pestle. They would cook it in pots, make it into loaves that tasted like cakes baked with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp during the night, the manna came with it. Moses heard the people crying, family after family. Each person at the entrance to his tent. The anger of Adonai flared up violently and Moses too was displeased. Moses asked Adonai, why are you treating your servants so badly? Why haven't I found favor in your sight? So that you put the burden of this entire people on me. Did I conceive this people? Was I their father? So that you tell me, carry them in your arms like a nurse carrying a baby to the land you swore to your ancestors. Where am I going to get meat to give to this entire people? Because they keep bothering me with their crying and saying, give us meat, give us meat to eat. I can't carry this entire people by myself. It's too much for me. If you're going to treat me this way, then just kill me outright. Please, if you have mercy toward me, don't let me go on being this miserable. And I said to Moses, bring me 70 of the leaders of Israel, people you recognize as leaders of the people and officers of theirs. Bring them to the tent of meeting and have them stand there with you. I will come down and speak with them, speak with you there. I will take some of the spirit which rests on you and put it on them. Then they will carry the burden of the people along with you so you won't have to carry it yourself along. Now tell the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you will eat meat because you cried into the ears of Adonai. If only we had meat to eat. We had the good life in Egypt. All right? Adonai is going to give you meat and you will eat it. Matter of fact, you won't just eat it one day or two days or five, ten, or twenty, but the whole month until it comes out of your nose and you hate it because you've rejected Adonai who is here with you and distressed him with your crying and asking, oh, why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, here I am with 600,000 men on foot and yet you say, 
I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. If whole flocks and herds were slaughtered for them, would it be enough? If all the fish in the sea were collected for them, would even that be enough? Adonai answered Moses, Has Adonai's arm grown short? Now you will see whether that, whether what I said will happen or not. Moses went out and told the people what Adonai had said. Then he collected 70 of the leaders of Israel, placed them all around the tent. And Adonai came down in a cloud and spoke to him, took some of the spirit that was on him, put it on the 70 leaders. But when the spirit came to rest on them, they prophesied. Then, but not afterwards. Now there were two men who stayed in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the spirit came to rest on them. There were among those listed to go out, they were among those listed to go out to the tent, but they hadn't done so, and they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Yahshua, the son of Nun, who from his youth up had been Moses' assistant, answered, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you so zealous to protect me? I wish all of Adonai's people were prophets. I wish Adonai would put his spirit in all of them. And Moses and the leaders of Israel went back into the camp, and Adonai sent out a wind which brought quails from across the sea and let them fall near the camp, about a day's trip on each side of the camp and all around it, covering the ground to a depth of three feet. The people stayed up all that day, all night, all the next day, gathering the quails. The person gathering the least collected ten heaps. Then they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still in their mouths, before it had even been chewed up, the anger of Adonai flared up against the people, and Adonai struck the people with a terrible plague. Therefore that place was named Kivrot Hatavah, Graves of greed, because there they buried the people who were so greedy. From Kivrot Hat Ava, the people traveled on to Hatzrot, and there they stayed at Hatzrot. How much time do you think passed? between Numbers 10.36 and Numbers 11. How long did it take for their attitude and behavior to change pretty radically? Three days. Three days. How often we've fallen on our knees and raised up our hands to the Lord in praise and adoration and then in a matter of hours we wind up flat on our faces in defeat. Should we be depressed about this and just give up? No. In some ways, we really ought to expect it. Not in the sense of expecting to be defeated before we ever start our journey, but in the sense that while we do have God's Spirit within us, we still carry around these fleshly tents and that evil inclination that's inherent to our natures. So some amount of failure is inevitable. That said, the amount of failure is largely connected to our will. Just how much are we willing to believe God and put our time and energies into knowing God? 
How much are we willing to resist the devil and our own desires in favor of obedience to the Lord? See, there's a direct quid pro quo set up in both the Old and New Testaments in that regard. Walk with the Lord and fail less. Walk away from the Lord, take our own path and fail more. You see, of all the myriad of reasons we must have Yeshua, it's because humanness and failure just go hand in hand. When we studied Leviticus, we saw just how multifaceted and inescapable sin is. How insidious uncleanness is. How hopeless our condition is without our Savior. We will sin. We will fail. But we can also minimize the depth of our sin and our failure if we commit ourselves to the commandments of God and to the power of the Spirit and to the salvation of our Messiah. Verse 1 says that the people became a group of complainers. You know, actually we're not even told what they were complaining about, but we can infer that it had to do with the difficult marching that they were currently enduring because the verses just preceding 11.1, that is the last several verses of chapter 10, were all about their marching and, fo- marching and following that fire cloud. Now, in all fairness, don't you think that the degree of difficulty that they were facing right about now was pretty formidable? I mean, can you imagine the amount of choking dust kicked into the air by two to three million people and probably a hundred thousand or more animals as they walked along. They weren't on some nicely groomed highway, although they would have been following some type of known trail. But where I believe they were, north of Midian in the hilly and rocky desert train was very challenging to walk over. Every family had small children. Every family had elderly and infirm. In the winter, the nighttime temperatures dropped below freezing. Every day during the extended summer, it was well over 100 degrees. This was not, under the best of circumstances, a very pleasant time. Worse, they took their complaint directly to the Lord. And the text says it was a bitter complaining. Actually, the word for bitter complaint in Hebrew is al-raw. All meaning complaint and raw, literally meaning evil. So while bitter is correct, we need to understand that the essence of the word bitter is rooted in evil. The idea of this phrase is that the Israelites responded responded to God's tov, kindness, goodness, with raw, evil, bitterness. That's the dynamic that was set up here. Now, the result of this unbelievably brazen act was that God punished them with fire. What was this fire? Well, first and foremost, it was divine and supernatural. It may have been lightning. It may have been similar to what Jehovah rained down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Whatever it was, it did not come from the wilderness tabernacle that was in their midst. And we know this because it says the fire broke out on the outskirts of the encampment. Moses interceded. That was his job. And God stopped the punishment. The place where where this happened was named Tavarah. And Hebrew Tavarah means burning. 
It was usual among the ancients, especially so among the Hebrews, to name places after incidents that happened there. And so we have rebellion number one, one of the six, along with its consequences. Now, verse 4 elucidates the next rebellion, which concerned food. Now, at the outset, let me point out that there is some minor disagreement over the location of this second rebellion. Some scholars say that they broke camp at Taberah and moved, and then this second rebellion happened. Others say they stayed at Taberah for a while, and it was at Taberah that the second rebellion also occurred. I, I kind of think they were still at Taberah due to the plain reading of the, of the text. But what we begin to see shape up is that there is going to be a parallel between the travel from Egypt to Mount Sinai and then the travel from Mount Sinai to Kadesh. So here we have an example. There is a cry for meat. And we saw this back in Exodus and the Lord responded by sending them quail to eat then. Now the first words of verse 4 indicate that it was actually a certain group of people who began this complaint for meat, and then the complaining started to spread throughout the camp. And that group of complainers, in Hebrew, is called Asaf Suf, Asaf Suf, and it means rabble, riffraff. This term is constructed very similarly to another unique Hebrew word that was used back in Exodus, Erev Rav, which means mixed multitude. Scholars are pretty unanimous that Asaf Suf is referring to that mixed multitude that was with them. The thousands of non-Israelites that followed along from Egypt and were required to camp on the outskirts of the Israelite encampment. In other words, the first of these complainers were actually resident aliens. They were the folks who were not Hebrews. They were foreigners who wished to remain foreign. No doubt the reference to the fire breaking out and the outskirts of the camp in the first rebellion is connected with the use of the word Asaf Suf to describe just who it was that started all this complaining for variety in their diets. Now these first two rebellion, rebellions began due to the pagans who had attached themselves to Israel, but who also did not share their faith or their mission. They just wanted whatever benefit they could glean from being near this favored people, but they also wanted to avoid the difficulties. Now, the next verse adds kind of an interesting twist. Why were they complaining about meat? They had pretty big herds and flocks with them. Because the meat they wanted was fish. Why fish? Because that was their main diet for protein when they were slaves in Egypt. Now a fascinating series of finds around a place called Avaris, which is at the foot of the pyramids of Geza. And near the fabulous underground tombs in the Valley of the Kings. Anybody here been there? Yeah, pretty interesting place. And all, all these places confirm 
that the staple food for Egypt's laborers, the construction workers, whether Hebrew or Egyptian, was fish. Enormous quantities of fish bones were found everywhere scattered in what was obviously well-equipped eating areas that could feed hundreds and hundreds at a time. And that makes sense. The Nile was a great source of fish. It was a very long river that stretched the whole length of Egypt. So pretty much anywhere one was in Egypt, fish was abundant and available. It could be easily dried, preserved, transported. Cattle could only be raised in certain areas of Egypt where there was sufficient pasture land, but beef spoiled in hours. So beef was more expensive, less available, except to the wealthier. Of course, out in the wilderness, they also couldn't have a garden, except if they stopped for extended periods of time, which they did sometimes. So in verse 5, they also complained that they're not getting fresh fruit or vegetables. Well, their staple since leaving Egypt was manna, and they were sick to death of it. Fried manna, boiled manna, roasted manna, baked manna, raw manna. It apparently tasted pretty good, as verses 7 and 8 explain, but this isn't the diet they were used to, nor did it provide a nice, broad spectrum of tastes like what they were used to back in the land of Goshen. As sick as the people were of manna, Moses was equally sick of them. He was exhausted and disgusted and beaten down. I mean, it would really be kind of funny if it wasn't so sad, because verse 10 says, the Lord was angry and Moses was distressed. What a mess. The completely demoralized Moses goes to the angry Lord and basically says, I'd rather be dead than deal with these people anymore. Moses goes on to say, what did I ever do to deserve this? I didn't create these people. I didn't think up this grand plan. This wasn't my idea. This also wasn't my covenant. All right, That your people ought to have their own land and now I'm supposed to take them to it? This isn't my burden. Moses says, where am I going to get all this variety of food that they're complaining about? How am I supposed to please everybody at the same time? One wants this, but the other one wants that. On second thought, you know, God, just shoot me. I mean, Moses was really in a mood. Interestingly, after Moses blows up a God, God doesn't chastise him for it. Rather, he just goes about addressing the requests. You know, I recall my dear departed father telling me so many years ago, but it was okay to get mad at God. It's all right. Just tell him how you feel, he'd say. He can take it. He's a big God. And you know, in reality, the closer a relationship we have with someone, the more we seem free to communicate and share our fears and disappointments and concerns with them. And this was actually what Moses was doing. Moses had an honest relationship with God. He told God of his frustrations. He told God what was going on inside of him. And God didn't punish him or say, don't you ever talk to me like that. You see, Jehovah isn't insecure. He knows who he is. He knows who you are. We're told to approach God and pray in spirit and in truth. Well, Moses approached God in truth even if it wasn't the 
very good spirit right at that moment. You know, maybe we ought to follow that example. So here's God's solution to the gripes. Take 70 elders, lay leaders of Israel, bring them to the front of the tabernacle. In other words, present them to God so that they can be authorized to share the burden. Now recall that God called for 70 elders to come part way up the side of Mount Sinai with Moses way back in Genesis. Now understand, this was not a council, follow me here, this was not a council designed to give Moses advice. He already had more advice and suggestions that he could handle. These men were to take on the burden. They were to do, not to suggest. Now the next several verses speak of something that we ought to pay close attention to. It talks about God's ruach, his spirit. Now I'm not sure that within the body of believers that there's any more controversial aspect of the Godhead than the work of the Holy Spirit. But it seems to me that here is an opportunity to gain some understanding about the Spirit. Now in verse 17, God says that he is going to anoint these 70 elders as leader assistants for Moses. But in order for these 70 to be not just ordinary run-of-the-mill supervisors and accountants and judges, God was going to put upon these men the same spirit that was upon Moses. Now, this was the only way these men would be able to carry the authority of God, which is absolutely necessary to carry out their new duties. Actually, what it says is that God was going to share or he was going to draw upon the spirit that was upon Moses and he was going to place that on the 70. The Hebrew is and literally it means to reserve or to withdraw. So what we have here is a spirit transplant from Moses to the 70. Does the thought of a spirit transplant sound a little bit odd or strange to you? Well, this sort of thing is going to happen again 13 or so centuries after this time. At Pentecost. During the Feast of Shavuot, Pentecost in Greek, immediately after Christ's death, the same spirit that empowered Yeshua was now to be shared and bestowed upon men. It is interesting that Yeshua says that the spirit could not come until he was gone. Why not? Well, this is a matter that requires some speculation for sure. But was it possibly that since his baptism and the Spirit of God descending upon him, that Yeshua was the sole container of the Holy Spirit on earth for a time? Was this perhaps all patterned after Moses? whereby for a time Moses seemed to be, as far as we know, scripturally, the only human upon whom God had endowed his spirit. 
Therefore, from the t- therefore, when it came time for Moses' authority and duties and power to be shared, it had to draw from Moses that sole earthly container, if you would, so that it could be spread out under the 70 men. Now, of course, I do think that is exactly what's happening. In some way, that's almost impossible to verbalize. Our Messiah instructed us that it's the job of every spirit-filled believer to feed the flock, to care for the body of disciples, to take his message to the world and make new disciples. It is the job of certain spirit-filled believers to lead other believers. But we're not to do any of it in our own power. Though we might be able to succeed to some level, I suppose. We're to start doing this after Jesus left and in the same power and authority that he had. The Ruach HaKodesh. The Holy Spirit. When Jesus was with us in person, he bore the burden himself, alone. Now we're to share that burden with him. That's This is what is meant by we're to pick up our own cross and follow him. This is about burden sharing. Frankly, this whole teaching makes our general Christian passivity look pretty irresponsible, doesn't it? Let me be clear. It's not that the Holy Spirit has some finite amount to him. But there is only one Spirit of God. I don't believe I can explain this much better, nor do I think there's a better word picture of how the Ruach, the the Holy Spirit, works than right here in Numbers with Moses and the 70 elders. And how it was after this pattern that its New Testament version, first in Christ, then from Christ to the believing community, was going to be manifest. By the way, notice that that 70 had to be brought before the Lord. They had to be brought before the wilderness tabernacle. Why? Because it was God doing the spirit spirit transplant, not Moses. And by doing it at the sanctuary of God, it was clear to all that it was not by the power of Moses, it was by the power of God that the miracle of the Spirit would be attributed. It's the same with us. You know, we can witness to folks and we can say, oh, I brought this person to the Lord. There's a sense of truth to that, perhaps. But like Moses who led those 70 elders to the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, that's as far as he can take them. That's as far as we can take them. That's it. We can lead them to the door. In a certain sense, we can persuade and get them to agree to come before the Lord. But from that point forward, it is strictly a miracle and a work of God that the Holy Spirit be transplanted into each new believer. Now next week, we're going to continue and behold as God gives the Israelites and those foreigners meat. Quail, in fact. It was just like he did once before. But there's going to be a very major difference. 
It is that the first time he did it in his grace to provide a real and tangible need, this time he's going to do it in righteous anger to make a point. And there's going to be an enormous price to pay for provoking God this way. Okay, we'll see you all next time.